everybody. I will be reading from Romans chapter 8 this morning, verses 1 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bottles bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adop adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Please pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you might open our eyes through your word so we can grasp the extent of our indebtedness, our obligation to your spirit, an obligation of love, and deliver us from the evil of believing we can be saved by our own works. In Jesus' name, amen. Put your hand up if you enjoy being in debt. Oh, I'm surprised. I'm really surprised. I thought there'd be someone who'd say, yes, I've got a quarter of a million dollar mortgage, I have $50,000 hex debt. I, I, you, my credit card, yes, yeah, it's, it's embarrassing. Um, not many of us enjoy being in debt, do we? But it's a reality of life. We, we all face debt. If you want to have a house, if you want to have a car, unless you've managed to save up all the money for it, 
you'll find yourself driving around with a debt with rubber wheels and a steering wheel and it just burns money. But being in debt is very sobering. It makes you think. Most people who are in debt find themselves reflecting on ways of getting out of debt. But in Romans 8 verse 12, the word translated obligation literally means debt, like money legally owed. It's the word used in the parable of the wicked servant who owed his master millions of dollars and was forgiven that debt and then he went out and he found a guy that owed him $20 and he grabbed him by the throat and started to throttle him and said, pay me back what you owe. And when the master found out what he'd done, he threw that guy into prison and said, you've got to pay back all your debt. So it's the same word that's used there. It's also the word that's used in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins, it's literally forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, those who sin against us. So today I want to look at Romans 8 verse 12. I'm not going to look at the whole chapter. Uh, I I want to look at verses 12 and 13 to help us see what it means for believers to be obliged or indebted to the Spirit of God, to God's Spirit, and why that is so vitally important to understand and how we are meant to live in the light of it. So I'm going to look at three things. One, what it means to be obliged or indebted, why we're so so obliged, and then I'll look at the fact of, okay, how should we then live in the light of that? So first of all, what does it mean to be obliged or indebted to the Holy Spirit? Well, let me read to you verses 12 and 13 from Romans 8. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have an obligation, debt, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body... You will live. Now take notice of the word therefore. Paul has been drawing a contrast between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. And now he's drawn the conclusion that believers are not obliged to the flesh. Our natural human way of living, leaning on our understanding, doing things on our own terms apart from God, that's what the flesh is. We're not obliged to that. We're obliged to the Spirit who sets us free from all of that. So throughout the book of Romans, we find that salvation is the dominant theme. It's the dominant concern of Paul's writing. And God's reconciliation of sinners through the cross of Christ is what is paramount as Paul unpacks what that means and the significance of it. And he answers questions along the way. He explains in great detail that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Salvation comes to us only by God's grace through Jesus Christ, our righteous substitute who died in our place. He rebuffs the objection that can be Uh, that we can keep on sinning so that grace might keep on abounding to us. 
He makes it clear that if Christ died on the cross for our sins, the very things that forced him to have to go to the cross, how can we keep on doing them in order to keep having grace? It would be inconsistent. We can't keep doing what we know full well angers God and causes him to send his son to die for us. So instead, the grace of God converts what we do and how and why we do it. So at the start of Romans 7, Paul gives a brilliant example from marriage about what it means to die to the law and live to the spirit. I nearly called this message a tale of two husbands, but I decided in the end not to. But listen to what he says, the illustration he gives at the beginning of Romans 7, because it frames Romans 8. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law, the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, living life our own way, doing our own thing, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul knew there is nothing wrong with God's law any more than there's something wrong with marriage. It is God's good gift to us, but the problem lies with us. The reason why we don't always have good marriages isn't because there's something inherently wrong with marriage. It's with the two people who are married. There's nothing inherently wrong with the law of God. It's good and perfect and righteous, shows us the standards of God the character of God. But the problem is in us. We can't keep that law. We fall short of it and the law keeps condemning us, condemning us. I often think of it like one of those uh, retractable seat belts. And the more you try and force against it, the more it'll just trap you. It's there for your own good, for your own benefit. But sometimes if you try and get out too quickly, it'll jam on you. If anyone had that experience, I've had that. I find it a bit frustrating at times. But the problem's with the operator, not with the seatbelt. So Paul knew that although he'd been set free from the law of sin and death through Jesus Christ, he didn't always live true to that reality. Listen to his anguish at the end of Romans 7. He says, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. 
But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So his despair over his unfaithfulness to God's spirit brings him back to the good news of the gospel. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death, the law of sin that brings death. So he picks up on what he'd said back in Romans 7 verse 6. But now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law. Like the, the lady whose husband had died and she's released from that first marriage so that she could serve in the new way in the spirit and have a second marriage. And that's the imagery that we've got in Romans 8. Today's passage, Romans 8, 1 to 17, opens up the hope and life that Christ's death brings to Christians because the legal penalty of sin and death expired when Christ died and was buried in the grave. It's like the old husband dying, first husband dying, and then the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead brings us into a new relationship. We're married to another. We're married to the Lord, not to sin. And the spirit who raised Christ's body from the grave will raise our mortal body on the last day as well because we've entered into a new relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so secondly, this is why we're so obliged to God's spirit. On the big screen, look, look at this table. There's a table here that I've done up of Romans 8, 9 to 11. On the left-hand side is Romans 8, 9 to 11, word for word. On the right-hand side, we see what this means when understood in terms of a wife who is free to remarry because her husband has died, explained in Romans 7. So let, let me just read to you that right-hand side and keep in mind what is written in Romans 8, 9 to 11 on the left-hand side. You are no longer married to Mr. Law of sin and death because he was put to death on the cross when Jesus died for your sins. Instead, you've been raised with Christ and given a fresh lease on life by the Spirit of God and are now in the stage of being prepared by him for your new husband, Mr. Perfectly Righteous Jesus, to live with him forevermore. If the renewing spirit of God lives in you, then you truly are a Christian. Since Mr. Perfectly Righteous Jesus loves you and will marry you at all costs, he has sealed you with his spirit like an engagement ring. For you are righteous in his sight, even if you still disgrace him at times. So take heart. 
Because the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead also lives in you by the grace of God, the Father. And is at work in you, cleansing you from sin. He will reunite your perfected inner being with your perfected body by raising you to everlasting life on the day Jesus returns for his radiant bride. Notice the actions of the Trinity there. Father, Son and Holy Spirit underlined. Now I witnessed a compelling example of this years ago. We had a man in our church who was brilliant. This is well over 30 years ago when I was living in Queensland. He was brilliant with electronics and computers. Right back in the 1980s, he single-handedly designed a computer that could run the Budrum Ginger Factory, automated completely. And he was just one of those brilliant guys. The trouble was his work took over his life and his whole house and his whole family. I'd go to visit this guy, he's a Christian, and I, when I, you could just open the front door. When you walked in, I literally had to start walking sideways between piles of computer equipment and old manuals and things from dirty floor to mouldy ceiling. Just packed all through his lounge room, down the hallway. Uh, I made, there's a little pathway through, a bit like an aisle here, and you could just kind of get through to the dining room table. And I got through to the dining room table and he had to move things off the dining room table and add it onto other things and clear a bit of space so we could sit down and read the Bible and pray. And his poor wife was utterly, utterly embarrassed. And she would be there and she'd make excuses for him and uh, she'd make us a cup of tea and we'd sit down and his daughter wouldn't even come out. Uh, she'd be in her own room and you know, I looked down the hallway and it was just just the same, a little pathway. It was unbelievable. Um, I, I kid you not, what I've described to you is, is, is true. So in his late 40s or maybe 50 or so, this man contracted bowel cancer and died. Several years later, his widow met another man who was the polar opposite of her first husband. And she took on a whole new lease of life. She was released from her first marriage by death. And she was engaged to a man who wouldn't clutter the house from floor to ceiling. She was engaged to a man who cared for her and they went out and they had a life together and did things together. She sold the cluttered old home, moved into a clean new one, began a whole new way of life. That is the kind of picture that Paul is giving us in Romans 7 that he's picking up on in the contrast between flesh and spirit in Romans 8. This picture is what Paul is saying about our obligation not to the old way of the flesh, that leads to death, but the new way of the Spirit that leads to life. Now, verses 9 to 11 show the triune God working together for our salvation, 
rescuing us from the burden of the law of sin and death, the Father planning it, sending his Son, Jesus dying on the cross to take the punishment for our sins so that when he died on the cross, those who believe in him, their sin dies with Christ. It's put to death. It's gone. And then the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead raises them in faith to new life and the Spirit takes up residence in their heart. So Paul describes this as life in the Spirit because the Holy Spirit unites the believer to Christ and is God's down payment, his holy lay-by deposit guaranteeing our resurrection at the last day. Functions like an engagement ring. We're engaged to be with the Lord. He hasn't yet returned. We haven't yet had the marriage. It hasn't actually happened yet. The marriage reception and ceremony awaits us in glory when Christ returns. But we're engaged to be his. He's put his mark on us. He's put his spirit in us. So consider what Paul says to the Corinthians. In chapter 1, verse 22, he says, It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. He picks up on it again in chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. When Christ died on the cross, those who trust in Christ have their sins as crucified as Jesus was. Except Jesus rose from the grave, but our sin is left in the grave. And the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is poured out on us. And we share in the life of the triune God. So in the same verse, if you look, verse 9, you'll see the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. They're not two separate spirits. It's the same Holy Spirit. So in the same verse, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of God, referring to the Father, and the Spirit of Christ, referring to the Son. The presence of the Spirit in us brings us into communion with God the Father and God the Son. We introduce, the Spirit's like a chaperone, introducing us into the life of communion with God. Wow. That's an obligation. That's a wonderful thing to be indebted to. I'd like to put both hands up and say, yes, yes, I'm indebted in that way. I agree with that. Do you agree with that? Does that strike you as something really significant? We experience communion with God the Father by the Holy Spirit introducing us to Jesus. The Father gave his Son a body to die in our place on the cross to make atonement for our sins and make the way for us to be reconciled to him. 
Once Jesus had died and risen triumphant from the grave, the way was clear for the Father and the Son to send the Spirit to dwell in us and there would be no bigamy. The first husband has died. He's free to be the second husband, the better one. So in Christ, by the Spirit, we enjoy no condemnation from the Father. And not even death can break that union because he's adopted us as his everlasting children and made us heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is flabbergasting mercy and love. It is truly amazing grace. The death of Jesus for repentant sinners brings them into an unbreakable union of love. A marriage quite literally made in heaven. So how should we then live in the light of that? That's the third thing. How should we then live? Well, we're to live in the Spirit, in relationship with God as his dearly loved chosen and adopted children. Just put the third point up. We are to live as grateful people. We've been ransomed, healed, restored and forgiven. Evidence of this is scattered throughout Romans 8. Look at verses 5 to 8. Those who live according to the flesh, the first husband, have their minds set on what the flesh desires, our old interests, being married to our first husband. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires, enjoying life with our new husband and serving and pleasing him, or a new engaged-to-be husband. The mind governed by the flesh is death. Separation from God by eternal death. Remember, the, the first husband is dead. Sin has been put to death on the cross when Jesus died. He truly died. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Reconciled to God, at peace with him forever through the ministry of the Spirit. Notice that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God and powerless to change or submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God because they haven't been born again. They're still legally married to sin and not free to change until they die with Christ and are raised to new life by the Spirit. Now look at Romans 8, 14 to 17, the passage just after 12 and 13 that I'm looking at today where this new relationship is described in terms of adoption so he shifted the imagery from marriage to adoption those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again as if still married to your deceased husband Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We have a new family and live under the faithful loving kindness of our gracious heavenly Father. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There is an obligation that goes along with this change. 
We've got to honour the family name. The good thing is the spirit in us helps us to do that and live that way. So as long as we remain faithful to the Lord and shoulder the consequences of what will come our way in life till Christ returns, we will get to share with him in glory. But the good thing is the Spirit is the one who helps us in that. So our obligation to the Spirit is as high as the heavens and as infinite as eternity. It's the same debt of gratitude we owe to Christ for dying in our place to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins and iniquities. Exactly the same. We're indebted to Christ for his death and resurrection. We're indebted to the Spirit for linking us with Christ. We're indebted to the Father for sending his Son. We have an infinite debt of gratitude, but the way the Lord wants us to show our gratitude is to love him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So it's not that we're in debt in a negative kind of way. We're indebted, we're obliged in love to God. Verse 14 sums up the Christian life as one of being led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit will always lead us to do two things with equal tenacity. Put off the old ways, the first relationship with sin that leads to death, the first husband, and put on the new ways that belong to our new relationship with God's Spirit, engaged to Christ, the new husband. In other words, there are only two ways to live. Fundamentally orientated to sin and its eternal penalty of death, the first husband, or fundamentally orientated to Jesus Christ, our eternal inheritance of life and peace with him, our new husband-to-be. So Romans 8.12 reminds us that we have an ongoing obligation, but it isn't to the flesh isn't to the first husband, it's to the second, it's to the spirit. Putting to death the misdeeds of the body means putting off our old ways of living as if we're still under our first marriage. That's gone. We're not, we're not indebted to that anymore. Sell the house, get rid of all the rubbish, sell the mortgage deeds, get out. Instead, we put on the new way of being led by the Spirit, led into a new relationship with Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us, who cares about us, who is about decluttering our hearts from sin, setting us free. Our obligation to the Spirit is a constant reminder that we can't serve two masters any more than we can serve two husbands. We'll either hate the first and love the second or be enslaved to the first and not be set free by the second. It all comes down to this. Either we do not have the Spirit or the Spirit has us. How can we know the difference between those two things? Remember the parable of the wicked servant 
who owed his master millions of dollars and was graciously forgiven his huge debt but then went out and choked his fellow servant until he agreed to pay him his $20. That man depicts the person who does not have the spirit, who lives according to the payback system of the flesh in his human relationships. He's controlled, his mind and spirit and desires are for the old ways. God has not led him to the point where he understands the gospel and can freely give to others what he has freely received himself. He remains in bondage to the law of still and death as if he's still married to that old way. Are you the kind of person who is drinking God's outpoured love at the cross? Where you realise the old has gone and the new has come. I'm not under the old ways of the flesh. I'm under new management. I'm engaged to be the Lord and he's preparing a place for me and he's going to return for me. And what bliss there will be on that day and what joy there is in my heart now. Is the Holy Spirit helping you to put off your old ways? Creating in you a new mindset. You have to keep remembering, that's right, I'm, I'm no longer married. He's gone. I'm free. Or are you still living like you were married to Mr. Law of Sin and Death? Do you withhold forgiveness when God has forgiven you so much? That's not living according to the Spirit. That's not being led by the Spirit. Are you gracious towards others as God has been gracious towards you? That's being led by the Spirit. Are you willing to get alongside others and help them as the Spirit gets alongside of you and helps you? That's being led by the Spirit. The Spirit leads us to pray the old way of being married to Mr. Law of Sin and Death didn't know about prayer except maybe the odd prayer, help me, help me, I need things, I need things. Are you still living like you're married to the flesh when in fact you've been born again and you're being led by the Spirit or meant to be led by the Spirit? If so, then you are showing you are ungrateful for the mercy the Father has bestowed on you in Christ by his Spirit. Have you forgotten that you were ransomed, healed, restored and forgiven in Christ? That you are promised to a new and better husband, your heavenly bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you the kind of person that John speaks about in 1 John 3, 23 and 24. This is God's command to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he loves us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. The Spirit that testifies, Abba, Father, that spirit of adoption, we know it comes out of us. 
the person who has tasted the grace of God and knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour and submits to him as their heavenly bridegroom knows they have an obligation to the Spirit, an enjoyable obligation where the yoke is easy and the burden is light, like that lady married to her new husband. Let me just say something here I think is important. The point Paul is making about the two husbands is not the contrast between one bad and one good. It's the, the contrast that one's dead and gone and, you, and the new one is here. So there are plenty of ladies that have been married to lovely men and they grieve a lot and it hurts a lot when the first husband dies. And maybe not... Maybe their second marriage isn't even quite as good as their first marriage. Maybe it's about the same. Maybe it's better. The issue here isn't the quality of the marriage. The issue is that one is gone and you cannot have a relationship with what is gone and the other is here and you can only have a relationship with what is here. That's the main thing. And that's what the Spirit of God is, is here for. Sin is gone, it died at the cross. Spirit has come, he's here. Live with him. Get to know him. Walk with him. Love him. He is the spirit of Christ and the spirit of the Father living in you. I encourage you this week to reread Romans 8, 1 to 17. Read it in the light of the example of Romans 7, 1 to 6, of a wife's first husband dying. I found it brilliantly helpful to me to understand the contrast between the old and the new. And as you do that, ask the Holy Spirit to impress on you the verse that comes immediately before Romans 7, 1 to 6. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have given us marriage to serve as a picture of the intimate relationship the church has with Jesus Christ. Help us to understand the obligation, the joyful obligation we have to your spirit who unites us to our Saviour, who sets us free from our bondage to the law of sin and death. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.